Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of us, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text this morning, and we're looking, we'll just begin looking at verses 10 to 17 as we get into, uh, get into this text. This is a monumental text, there's so much here, and uh, we're going to take it apart at least two weeks, hopefully not more than three. Uh, there's just a lot here as we think about uh, the future, as we think about the present, so much Paul packs into each one of these verses. And so at times we will tend to slow down, and this might be one of those sections. Earlier this week, I was, uh, had Monday's kind of my, my day off, and I was working on a small fix it project in the house. Uh, we are uh, trying to improve the airflow in one of the kids' bedrooms. And uh, so I installed a pass-through vent in the door, since that seemed to be the cheapest and quickest way to get air out of the room. And uh, so I was using a saw, a jigsaw, to cut up basically a pattern out of the bottom, out of this door. And uh, I was a bit surprised, because it's an older door, I uh, was surprised that um, as I started cutting it, I realized it wasn't solid wood at all. In fact, it was, um, it was particle board with a hollow core. And I was reminded, yet again, how pervasive, cheap, and low-quality building materials are in modern construction. Although our home is not by any stretch modern, but uh, they just don't build homes like they used to. And uh, it's interesting to me that there are castles and cathedrals in Europe that are literally centuries old and for the most part are unmoved. And yet, tragically... Tragically, we see condo complexes that are barely 40 years old collapsing in the middle of the night as people are sleeping in their beds. Anywhere you live now, chances are there's a company or companies in the area whose only business is to repair foundations, to repair foundations, even on homes that are as young as 15 or 20 years old. These are homes built with the latest technology, with the the latest know-how and equipment, and yet their foundations are cracked and crumbling. The materials that are used in new construction are so cheap and of such poor quality nowadays that we actually have a special term for them. We call them builder's grade, right? They're builder's grade materials. They're just good enough to get past inspection and to get you as the person Uh, paying the contractor to sign off on the job, but they're so cheap so as to need replacing and upgrading almost as as soon as the warranty period expires. The, The race to find the cheapest, easiest, and worst building materials ever and then to pawn those things off on uh, unsuspecting homeowners as amazing technological breakthroughs is, uh, has really truly been inspiring. In fact, um, one home renovation contractor compiled his list of top six uh, cheap, worst building materials that he's come across, and he had some, some interesting uh, comments on this. The first one was, uh, of course, particle board. He says, there are a few products that do as poorly when exposed to water, moisture, or even humidity as particle board. He says, and yet armed with that knowledge, the construction industry decided to market it for use in bathrooms, in kitchen cabinets, and countertops. He says... As a bonus, you always get more particle board than you pay for, since after a couple of years under your sink, it is swollen to twice its original size. He says of aluminum siding, let's find the thinnest, most easily dentable metal on earth and cover our houses with it. 
That way you can have a record of every dent and every ding as a story to tell the neighbors. And as a benefit, having a metal exterior means, he says, in the summer, you can cook things on the siding if your grill runs out of gas. <laughs> and then, of course, the hollow core doors. He says, if your toddler can punch through your door, does it really even count as a door? Granted, it's hard to tell when you touch it, whether it's fake or not, but when you try and slam a hollow core door and it's stopped by the wind, you know something isn't right. And, of course, he mentions vinyl. He says, how can we make a material that will constantly off-gas dangerous fumes for years and also convince homeowners to install it everywhere? We'll clearly disguise it as wood or tile or some other safe and renewable material that they really want. He says, thankfully, it's maintenance-free. So once it breaks, you don't have to worry about fixing it because you can't. You get to throw it away and buy more vinyl. And then he mentions asbestos. He says it's fireproof, it's rotproof, it's insectproof, and it will kill you if it gets in stuck in your lungs. All around a good choice for every building material we can squeeze it into. He says just remember you can either abate the asbestos in your house or put your child through college. And so... Uh, those are his list of the worst and cheapest building materials, but it just kind of underscores a point, and I, I mention all this by way of introduction. It underscores a point to me that while our knowledge, our tools, our equipment to construct homes or buildings, that knowledge is as robust as it's ever been in human history. It's as sophisticated as it's ever been in human history, and yet the quality and the durability of what we build could not be worse. It just reinforces the reality that because something is novel, it does not mean that it is exceptional. It does not mean that it is exceptional. In our race to what we view as the top, we in reality have been racing to the bottom. And that's not just true when it comes to construction materials or building a home or, or, a, or an office building or something like that. That is also true when it comes to the church and ministry. J.I. Packer warned again and again throughout his life against giving way to the spirit of the age. He says, quote, the newer, this, this, this reality, he says that, quote, the newer is truer, only what is recent is decent, or that every shift of ground is a step forward and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. End quote. The wisdom of the world looks alluring. It looks alluring. And we fall victim to what's known as the aesthetic fallacy, the aesthetic fallacy. Put simply, the aesthetic fallacy is this belief that if something looks convincing, that it is by, in essence, convincing and must be taken, must be taken seriously. Carl Truman talks about how as a young graduate student, his writing seemed to leap forward in maturity, he says, in importance almost overnight. Almost overnight, he says, simply by typing up his papers on a word processor instead of writing them out on, uh, on, by hand on loose leaf. He says, suddenly, quote, my writing seemed more coherent, my arguments more convincing, and with the addition of footnotes, my papers more scholarly and compelling. But he says it was the look of my papers that made them seem more serious rather than any qualities intrinsic to the arguments themselves or the research. In other words, he's saying his writing was suddenly overlaid with a veneer of scholarly knowledge and scholarly truth and scholarly wisdom. 
in its form, by, simply by its formal appearance, but had nothing on the inside that had fundamentally changed. This is how worldly wisdom gets a foothold into the church. It looks like knowledge. It looks like truth. It looks like wisdom. But the reality is that it's just foolishness at its core. And the Corinthian church thought they were racing to the top by championing superiority of speech or by championing persuasive rhetoric or cleverness or force of personality or elevating their preferred leaders in the church and boasting in men. But in reality, they were not racing to the top. They were racing to the bottom. They were racing to the bottom. And though they had this solid foundation, Jesus Christ and him crucified, yet they were now seeking to build Christ's church with the latest and the greatest building materials, which will ultimately be revealed in that final day as cheap and worthless. That's why Paul says what he says in chapter 1, verse 19. Speaking for God, God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And then Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And that's his point. God has and will in the future reveal man's wisdom for what it really is, destined for the trash heap, only to be replaced with something else that looks new and shiny the next day and the next day. And that was what was going on in Corinth. Their pursuit of worldly wisdom had this veneer, this overlay of knowledge and truth and insight. They were saying things like, you know, we need less preaching about Jesus dying on a humiliating cross and making atonement for sinners to rescue them from divine wrath. We need less of that, and we need more movers and shakers, more influential leaders in high places showing the world that Christians are are just as in touch with the culture as they are. And we need less leaders who walk in meekness and fear and trembling and dependence on the Holy Spirit's power. And what we really need are more men who can go toe-to-toe with the scholarly and the rhetorical heavyweights in our culture. They say we need less reliance upon the sufficiency of Scripture to reveal and understand God's wisdom to our hearts. And we need more elevation, more integration of secular philosophies and and worldviews into our ministry so that people won't sneer at us like we're foolish. These are the kinds of things that they they were sort of saying by their actions and maybe even by their words. These were all bouncing around the Corinthian church, and Paul addresses all of them in the opening two chapters. And yet, it's interesting to me that those things still captivate our churches today. They still captivate our churches. They are alluring to the immature, Paul says in the beginning of chapter 3. Christians are still drawn to an overly dependent on force of personality and strong, worldly strong and influential leaders. Christians still want to play the scholar's game. They still want a seat at the table in our academic institutions at all costs. Christians are still repackaging every secular philosophy with Christian vocabulary and then marketing it to the church as a ministry paradigm shift. But the thing is, like our bedroom door, 
while it has the external appearance of real substance, knowledge, truth, wisdom, on the inside, it's hollow. It's empty and worthless. And Paul's correction in verses 1 to 9 unmasks that directly with the Corinthians. He unmasks their immaturity. He says, I I could not even speak to you as to spiritual men, but as if men of flesh, as mere infants in Christ. I had to give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. You are still fleshly. He says, there's a childish way to think about the church and ministry, and that's what you're doing. That's what you're living it relies on worldly wisdom and it boasts in men instead of Jesus Christ and it's, it's fruit of that mindset and those actions is division, jealousy, strife and it leaves God's people thinking and behaving like those who operate on a purely horizontal level. That's what he means in verse 3 when he says you're walking like mere men. On the other hand, there's another way to think about life in the church and ministry and that he lays out in verses 5 to 6. And that is the mature mindset. He says we need to think of leaders and we need to think of ourselves as servants of God and nothing more. What then is Apollos, verse 5? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. We are those, he says, who are faithfully laboring together under God. In Christ, in God's field, we are sowing and watering gospel seed to make the mature disciples of Christ. The, ma- the mature, he said, labor patiently. They labor dependently for God to cause what growth he is going to cause. They don't boast in men or man's wisdom. They boast in nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what Paul's made clear thus far in this section is that everything is God's. The church is God's. The ministry, the work itself belongs to God. Paul belongs to God. Apollos, everything. It all belongs to God. So you and I as the church are God's field. You and I as the church are God's building. And because everything belongs to him, particularly the church, right? We are his treasured possession. Paul continues his warning In some of the strongest possible terms, in verses 10 to 17, reminding us that those who build Christ's church must beware. Must beware. We need to beware how we build, because if we're not careful, our labors will not stand the Lord's perfecting examination. They will not stand the Lord's perfecting examination. Examination. The, the Corinthian church had shifted away from building with the imperishable materials of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and they were building with the perishable wisdom of the world. And it was causing division. 
and fracturing Christ's church because that's what worldly wisdom does. James says it brings disorder and every evil thing instead of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And if we're not careful, we can make the same mistakes that they did. We can make the same mistakes because, unfortunately, history is more of a merry-go-round than a train ride from point A to point B. Human history is more of a merry-go-round. Before you know it, you're right back where you started. A, a generation, a decade later, we're fighting the same battles, making the same mistakes. And Paul is warning them, he's warning us, don't go down this road. Be careful, beware how you build. And picking up on the metaphor of the church as God's building at the end of verse 9, and what he said in verse 8 about each person being rewarded according to their labor, that moves Paul into our text this morning in verses 10 to 17. And Paul hammers a a big builder beware sign into the ground in verses 10 to 17. So let's just read the text by, to set it in front of us so we understand, and then we'll begin, just begin to unpack it this morning. Paul says, According to the grace of God, verse 10, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You can break this text down into three sections. Verses 10 and 11, we see the one foundation in verses 12 to 15, we see two ways to build, and then there's a final warning in verses 16 and 17. We're going to begin this morning looking at verses 10 and 11, and Paul reminds us that there is only one foundation. There is only one foundation. One of the things I love about Paul is he, he's perfectly content to mix metaphors. He mixes metaphors all the time. He switches back and forth. It's one of the things that keeps me in business, is trying to figure out what way is he using this figurative language. And as he describes the church in verses 5 to 9, he's been using mostly agricultural word pictures, word pictures like sowing seed and watering it into the ground and God causing growth. And he speaks about the church at the end of verse 9 as God's field, meaning it's kind of a generic term for any cultivated land. Could be a vineyard, could be um, wheat, whatever. But now at the end of verse 9... Kind of seemingly almost out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit prompts him to compare the church to a building. He speaks about the church as a building. And it's important to understand that, that in this new analogy, though he's changed word pictures, the referent that he's speaking about has not changed. The church is the building here in the text, not you and I as individual believers 
um, he'll go on to describe our individual uh, bodies as a temple in chapter 6, using this imagery of uh, sort of our body, physical individual bodies being a building. But here in the context, he hasn't changed who he's talking about. He's speaking about the church as a whole, the church collectively. The field is the church, and the building is the church collectively. The local gathering, when he speaks about the church, he's talking about the local gathering of God's new covenant people, Jew and Gentile, in the church. The, we are God's building. And just as in the previous section, God is the owner. Remember, he says, you are God's building. And Paul, just as in the previous section, Paul is the founder of the church. So he's changing word pictures, but the analogy is essentially identical. God is the owner of whatever it is, whether it's a field or a building. He is the founder as one who planted seed and now as one who lays a foundation. And uh, so the question is, how does, uh, how does Paul think about and approach his responsibility as a laborer um, working on God's building? And he, again, reiterates this mindset of a servant. He tells us in verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. So he answers, really, he gives us two kind of ways in which he thinks about his labor in God's building, as God's builder. First, he says he went about the task according to the grace of God given to him. According to the grace of God given to him. Paul says, I was given this very specific apostolic calling and ministry of planting gospel seeds, of seeing them germinate and getting them started all across the Roman, the Roman world. And Corinth was probably one of the places he stayed the longest of all the places that he ever visited, of all the churches that he ever planted, if not the longest, at least from what we can tell from the book of Acts. So, so this was an anomaly. His time in 18 months in Corinth initially, that was an anomaly. Paul doesn't usually stay around that long. He was constantly planting seeds, getting them started, and moving along. And so that's why he speaks of himself in chapter 4, verse 15, as a father. He says, indeed, you have countless tutors in Christ. He says, but I became your father through the gospel. Why? Because he was the one laying the foundation. He was the one laying the foundation, planting the seed. Romans 15, verse 20, Paul tells the Roman church that his apostolic calling wasn't to park himself in one place and stay there until he died, but was, he said, to preach Christ where Christ had not yet been named, lest he build on another man's foundation. He was essentially a catalytic church planner. Start a work, start a work, train up a few guys to follow up behind him, and on he went. This is his job. This was his calling. Paul was in the foundation building business. That's what he did. And it wasn't, he says, his doing. It was according to the grace given him. In other words, it was God's work. It was God's doing. God gave him all the grace. And as he said in the previous section, God gets all the glory. They are God's building. They're not Paul's building. 
So he says he labored as one according to the grace of God given to him. And secondly, he says he went about the task as a wise master builder. As a wise master builder. The picture here is not uh, just of a workman. And we are servants, and he talks about that. But here, he says his calling as an, as an apostle was a little bit distinct. He wasn't just a carpenter or a day laborer, but he says he served as one who was a wise master builder. The literal term is architecton. What does that sound like to you in English? Architect. Now, it doesn't translate immediately from English back, but the point is that the idea is that he was the chief engineer. He was the architect in some sense. He was the one contracted to oversee all the moving parts and to set it in order. And that's why we have it translated in a lot of our modern English translations, master builder. He describes himself not just as any master builder. He says, I was a wise master builder. He was wise. The description of being wise here harkens back to the previous chapters. He's been talking about wisdom all along, contrasting God's wisdom with man's wisdom. God's wisdom, which to the Corinthians looked like foolishness, and man's wisdom, which to God is foolishness. And he's, he's he again, just playing off of that theme once again. They were enamored with man's wisdom. They, they, they kept elevating man's wisdom, which was foolishness. And Paul says, I possessed God's wisdom, the good news of the gospel and the truth of his word. Because of that, I was a wise master builder and I laid a solid foundation. It's a foundation that he and the other apostles and prophets laid in Corinth and many other churches. And now, he says, those who are following after them have the task of building upon that apostolic foundation. That's what he says at the end of verse 10. And another is building on it. Paul uses almost the identical analogy or word picture in Ephesians 2. So turn over to Ephesians 2 for just a second. In verse 19 and 20, he uses a whole slew of word pictures to describe the church in verses uh, 11 to 22, but he says at the end of verse 19, the saints are God's household. So it's another word for building. Having, in these, in kind of filling out that description, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So, Verse 20 reminds us that the apostles and prophets are a vital part of the foundation-laying work of the church. And we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. The foundation was laid by Paul, by Peter, by the other apostles and prophets. And there were now others falling in behind, continuing the work of building up Christ's church. And that's what prompts the warning in verse 10, the end of verse 10. And then verse 11, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is, he's taking aim at 
the Corinthians, and in particular those who were leading the way in causing strife and division, and there were many, he says, you must be careful how you build on the foundation. Not only that, verse 11, Paul reminds him, you need to be careful what foundation you're even building on. Why? Why does he say this? Why, Paul, do we need to be careful how we build? Because there is only one foundation. That's his point. There is only one foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have to understand that Jesus is not, he's not one of many ways to God. He is the only way to God. Look at John chapter 10 for just a moment. John chapter 10. Jesus says this of himself. In verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and I will go in and, and, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. He says, I came that they may have life. He is the door through whom salvation is received, and only through him. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one meteor also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. He is the only way to God. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation, Peter says, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is not a way to God. He is the only way to God. The only way to God. Not only is Jesus the only way to God, the one foundation upon which the good news of the salvation rests, he describes him as the chief cornerstone from which every other stone in the foundation in the building is set. If you look back at Acts 4 and the previous verses, he's speaking of Jesus he says, uh, the one whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Again, using this imagery of a foundation and a building. Peter uses the same analogy again in his own epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, in coming to him, to Jesus, as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as the church, are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
So the same picture is used again. The church is the building, the temple. We as believers are the individual stones being built up into a spiritual house. And it is built upon Christ, the cornerstone. The cornerstone. All the word pictures in these verses, in these sections of Scripture, reveal different facets of this glorious new humanity that Christ has ushered in, in the church. If we go back to Ephesians 2 for just a second, he uses the same picture again, and just reiterating, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The cornerstone. The church, the church, like any building, sturdy building, must have a solid foundation. It has to have a solid foundation. And that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And by apostles, we mean those who saw the resurrected Christ in person, those who officially were commissioned by God. And by prophets, he doesn't mean Old Testament prophets, he means those who were supernaturally gifted to proclaim God's revelation to the churches in those early days before all of Scripture was recorded and God's final revelation was complete to man. He used apostles and prophets. And the foundation he's speaking about there is their lives and their teaching. The church was established by their walk and by their witness for Jesus Christ. They spread the good news all over from Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world. He then goes on to say that Christ is the cornerstone. Just as Peter said, Christ is the cornerstone. Just as Paul says, Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone. The description in each of these sections is an allusion back to the words of Isaiah. In 28, chapter 8, 28, verse 16. The cornerstone in ancient times was the, was the focal point. The beginning of laying any foundation began with a cornerstone, the headstone. It was the first stone that would be laid. It was the, the, the builder who would labor would use and set that stone very carefully and properly, because that stone was the stone from which every other stone in the building was measured, both on the foundation and on the superstructure. You get that wrong, you get the rest of it wrong. And when Paul says that Christ is the cornerstone, he is making the point that every stone, the foundation stones, meaning the apostles and prophets, the stones that form the building, the saints, all of them are measured against Christ. The cornerstone. Everything, everything in this word picture by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul's laboring according to the grace of God, his conducting himself as a wise master builder, and now his unparalleled affirmation that Jesus Christ is the one true foundation and chief cornerstone. Everything in this word picture, all of it is a direct confrontation with the Corinthians between Paul and them and their worldly wisdom. He is warning them. This is a warning 
passage. He's warning them not to go any further down the road that they're on. It's a warning. It's a warning to them. It's a warning to us. We must be careful how we build on the foundation, and he's going to talk about that in verses 12 to 15. But even before that, we need to be careful what foundation we're building on. Before a building can be raised up, a foundation has to be laid down. And that foundation must be solid and square and plumb. And there is only one foundation, and there is only one cornerstone, and that foundation, the New Testament and the Old Testament, make plain, is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. He suffered, he died, he rose from the grave on the third day, and he calls on all men everywhere to repent, to follow him, to trust in him, And so before we go any further in the text, or before we go any further down this road, I have to ask you, have you done that? Have you trusted in him? You say, well, I'm in church. Of course I have. Really? Have you? Have you, young person, committed your life to him in all things? Have you acknowledged your sin, your helplessness? Have you come to the end of yourself and said, that man is dead, that woman is dead, I'm going to follow Christ? Have you said that? Have you, have you thrown yourself on his mercy? Because we, we, don't, we don't worship a book and we don't worship an organization. We worship the living God, Jesus Christ. And if you haven't trusted him, if you haven't thrown yourself on his mercy, today is the day. You must. We saw it earlier. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation nowhere else, whatever you're chasing after. And it is the proclamation of that truth that must be the bedrock upon which Christ's church is built. No other foundation will do. I'm reminded of Matthew. Um, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Peter gives this uh, confession, this acknowledgement. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? The Son of Man is. And Simon answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This goes back to chapter 2. You didn't figure this out on your own. You're not acknowledging this because you were smarter than everybody else. But he said, My Father who is in heaven has revealed it. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The rock that... Jesus references there in verse 18 is Peter's good confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. It's it's the gospel. And so while the bulk of Paul's concern in our text, back to 1 Corinthians 3, is wrapped up with how we're building the superstructure on the properly laid foundation. Verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 3 
cuts in on this little verbal dance and reminds us that there can be no other foundation. And there can be no other cornerstone other than the one that has been laid, he said, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And the foundation that he's speaking of isn't really, he's not gathering up all of sound doctrine necessarily. That's not really what's in view here. He's just focusing on the gospel, the content of the gospel. It's very similar to what he says in chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, We preach Christ crucified. Or chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's, it's the gospel that he is alluding to in verse 10 and 11. Listen, there are churches with the name church in their title. They have abandoned the gospel. They've abandoned the gospel. The gospel is not preached by those who lead those churches. The gospel is not believed by many who sit in those churches. And the gospel is not being entrusted to the next generation of those who are in those churches. They have deserted him who called them by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which Paul says in Galatians 1 is really not another because there's only one. They've abandoned the gospel of Christ crucified for another gospel of politics or another gospel of personal and cultural grievance and another gospel of self-help and personal happiness or fill in the blank. That is what they're concerned about. They are building, as it were, a church soul by soul on the sand. And when the rain falls and the floods come and the wind blows and slam against that house, it will fall. And as Jesus says in Matthew 7, great will be its fall. But Paul's words here in verses 10 and 11 echo Jesus' words like the wise man. Be like the wise man, he says, who builds his house a different way. Because when the rain falls and the floods come and the wind blows and slam against that house, it does not fall. And Jesus tells us why. Because it was founded on the rock. It was built upon the rock. It was built upon the true foundation. It was anchored by the chief cornerstone. And what we're going to see as we look at the rest of the section is that Paul's elaborations and exhortations in verses 12 to 17, to be careful how we build, that is all, much like the building, related to the character of the foundation. It's related to the character of the foundation, Jesus Christ. Listen, you wouldn't build a straw hut on top of a bedrock foundation and expect that thing to stand the long term. Why then would you build Christ's church with the cheap and perishable materials of worldly wisdom and then try and place that temporary superstructure on top of the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? It defies common sense. There can be no Christianity without Christ 
as the foundation and the gospel. And that is all Paul is getting at in these opening two verses. There is only one foundation. And he sets the stage for everything else that he's going to say. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. And that's what we'll look at next time, because there's two ways to build. There are two ways to build, two materials to use, two very different rewards. And we want to be those who build on that solid foundation. As a church, our commitment is to preach the gospel, to teach God's word, and to shepherd souls toward maturity, to plant, to water, and wait for God to cause the growth. It doesn't get a lot of um, doesn't get a lot of uh, people excited in the world, <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Because we're waiting on God to cause the growth, but we need to be careful how we build. And as we said last week, we need to be careful, or we need to be uh, about the work. Because each man will receive his own reward according to his labor. And that's what we'll look at next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your reminder. We thank you that you are the chief cornerstone. You were rejected by so many. But out of that rejection, you went to the cross to make atonement for sin. And to purchase out of uh, the slave market of sin, those whom you called and set your love upon from eternity past. Lord, we've been the beneficiaries of that good news. We've received that good news. that we have, It has done its work in so many hearts. We pray if there's any here this morning who are outside of that looking in, who, who are not even building anything, they're not contributing to the work of the church is building because they're not even a part of the building. We pray that you would draw their hearts to you. We pray that we would make Christ the one foundation in our church, that this church would continue to build upon that rock because we know the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.